In 2 John, it is written about the same time as 1 John, which you learned was written toward the end of the first century. And the early church felt like the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John were all written by John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. Now, in 1 John, remember, it didn't give us any clues about who wrote it. Our clues were what the early church patriarchs had said, and they had all said with a unanimous voice that John the Apostle had written 1 John. Not only that, you could read 1 John and see the themes were repetitive of the gospel of John, like being born from above or born again, light and life and flesh and Jesus coming in the flesh and just the vocabulary and the theology and the themes confirm for us that indeed uh, this was written by the same, same person. You remember that the problem in the late end of the first century, especially in Asia is that we have a group of Gnostics, or at least they're the beginning of Gnosticism, and they taught something like this. You're going to see it again in the books tonight. They taught that at the baptism, the Spirit of the Christ descended upon Rabbi Jesus, but before the crucifixion, uh, well, that he ascended and had nothing to do with Calvary opposite of what Brad taught us this morning about the cross being important and Jesus paying for our sins and propitiation. Well, none of that for these Gnostics. They teach that salvation comes from having the certain knowledge, a special knowledge. And you need to have that knowledge. And John argues, no, you're sinners. Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins. And it comes from believing the right things about Jesus. Well, let's begin in the second letter of John, the elder. Now, he doesn't give us a name. Uh, presbyteros is the word here in the Greek text. It means an old man, uh, usually because older men led in the church because they were thought to have wisdom. Are you following me? It came to be an official title for someone who had an office in the church. And so, we might translate it, in, in the Baptist church, the elder functioning would be like the pastor and the staff, and then we would have deacons on top of that. But the elder, the presbyteros to the chosen, you might say the pastor to the church. The chosen lady is the church. The elder is the pastor. Uh, a pastor might write a, a letter to his church, and really his name isn't important. It's the service role that he plays for the congregation that's important, and so he might just sign it pastor. Are you follow me? Regardless of who's in the chair, he's the, the, the pastor, and so that's kind of the way it goes here. It is his position as a leader in that church, having been part of that church before, now being away from the church, an elder to the chosen lady. So the old man, the elder, the leader, the pastor, to the chosen lady and her children. My way to say that is to the church and her members, the chosen lady being the church and the children being the members. The word for lady, interestingly enough, is the feminine word for Lord. We call Jesus is Lord, is the most important proclamation of the New Testament. Interestingly enough, this lady is a feminine form of that word Lord. And so we have the Lord and the Lordess, you might say. You know, we have 
Christ, the bridegroom, and the church that is the bride. So we have the Lord and the lady, the lady being the feminine form of Lord, coming together, having these chosen children that are the members of the church. So the old man leader, the pastor to the church, the feminine form of Lord, and her children, which represents the members of the church, whom I love in truth, And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth which abides in us will be with us forever. Now, what is this truth? I can tell you in this letter what the truth is. The truth is everything that is right in belief about Jesus, especially that he really came in the flesh and was crucified and had a bodily resurrection. So that's the truth which John loves to this community. Now, normally in a letter, we have this greeting of grace and peace. If Paul was writing the letter, we'd have grace and peace, right? Well, John one-ups Paul. He uses three words in his greeting, grace and mercy and peace. Mercy being almost a repeat of the idea of mercy It represents all the spiritual blessings given to men by God and peace, the shalom of God. Grace and mercy and peace be with us. And from the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, truth and love. Now, the idea of God being the Father, there in verse 3, God the Father is not a completely new idea in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, or in Judaism, God was sometimes referred to as Father, but not in the way of personal relationship. Jesus brings that into the equation. Remember how he teaches us to pray? Our Abba, our Father, that familial word of endearment, our Daddy, it's a little more formal than that, but it's not as formal as Father. Um, Your children probably don't call you Father. Uh, It's somewhere in between Daddy and Father, but whatever it is, it is a word of a personal relationship. So in Jesus, we learn that personal relationship that He is our Father. God the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, and truth and in love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. Now, what's he mean? I was glad to find some of your children walking in truth. Does that mean some of them aren't? It might, but probably what it means is this. Someone has come to visit John, and he has found those who have come to visit him to be walking in truth. And so, you might translate it this way. I was glad to find that the The brothers who came to see me, uh, your children of the church, are walking in truth. And just as we received, have received commandment to do from the Father. Now, in verse 5, you're going to think I'm reading to you 1 John again. Or you're going to think I'm reading you from the Gospel of John Uh, chapter 13. So it's from 1 John 2, the gospel of John 13. In fact, uh, do not look at your Bible. If I say to you, a new commandment I give you, but it's not a new commandment, what is that commandment? Love one another. 
Okay, here it goes, verse 5. That's how you know it's the same guy. And now I ask you, lady, not writing to you as a new commandment. Well, actually, in the gospel of John, John 13, he does call it a new commandment. And we saw in the first epistle, he calls it sometimes a new commandment, and sometimes it's not a new commandment. It's new in the fact that there's never been love like this among people until Jesus taught us to love. You cannot know how to love until you see the prime example of love of someone dying on the cross for another. Laying no greater love has any man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friend. And so it is new. It is a new way of seeing the love. But by now, at the end of the first century, there's been some time Jesus has already given the commandment, so it's not new in another sense. It's new in the sense that it represents the new era of walking in Christ, being a part of a new family, a new kingdom, being part of the kingdom of God, being part of the church. So, and now I ask you, Lordess or lady, the church, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that is from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that we love one another. Two major emphases of the first letter were commandment-keeping and loving your brother. We're about to see here commandment-keeping and loving your brother. And this is love. What is love? That we walk according to his commandments. This is a commandment, just as you have first in the beginning, that you should walk in it. Now, how is love... And commandment-keeping wedded together in John's mind. I'll tell you how. If you think about part of the Ten Commandments, the second half of the Ten Commandments, they focus on what? Our relationship with each other. And if we love each other, in fact, in Romans, Paul says that if you love uh, your brother, if you, if you love your brother like you love yourself, if you love your brother, then you're keeping the commandments. Why? Because if I love you, I won't covet your wife, I won't steal your horse. I won't lie to you. I won't bear false witness. You see what happens here? If you love your brother, you'll keep the commandments. You won't steal from someone you love. You see that? So if you love each other, then you'll keep the commandments of Moses because you'll treat each other with a whole new ethic. The commandments now are kept because we love one another. Now look at verse 7. There's no verse that describes a heresy that's attacking this community better than this verse does in verse 7. He spells it out. We looked at it in 1 John over and over again, but here in this verse, he spells it out forthrightly. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. I suggested in the first letter, going out of the world means that they started in the church, though they weren't really part of the church. He says they never would have left the church they have gone out into the world. Who are, who, are, who are the deceivers? Who has a deceptive spirit? Look at the end of verse 7. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. They're deceivers. They're the Antichrist. So, sounds just like the first letter, doesn't it? That those who are teaching that this rabbi Jesus wasn't the Christ from the very beginning as a Bethlehem baby, and the Word became flesh, First John, and dwelt among us, 
came in the cradle. He was the Christ then. He was Christ all the way to his ascension, and he is still the Christ. So much so, when we see him again, he will still bear the scars of the crucifixion. Behold, and guess who wrote Revelation? Same guy, right? So he makes Jesus flesh all the way through. Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain. Who's worthy? So you are against the Christ, Antichrist being only a word used in these Johannine letters. You have the spirit of the Antichrist if you are teaching anything about the fact that Jesus, the rabbi, is not in the flesh. Look again at verse 7. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver. This is the Antichrist. I told you I tend to be a person with a high Christology. I tend to think the highest of Jesus. And, of course, you can't think too highly of Jesus. But John is really good to remind me. I can fall very easily into Paul's glorified Christology, and I can forget that he was tired and weary and asked for a drink at the well, and he weeps at the funeral of a friend. And I can forget that he would get hungry and want some fish and be weary and want some time alone. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. He had to be one of us to lead us. Watch yourselves, verse 8. That you might not lose what we have accomplished. He started the church out on a good trek, and he does not want them to fall from the base which he has established, that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And the one who abides in the teaching, he is both the Father and the Son. Your translation in verse 9 may say doctrine of Christ. It's interesting if it does. Remember we said in 1 John that if anyone, you want to find out if any movement or teaching is a heresy, you ask one simple question. What do they teach about Jesus? What do they teach about Jesus? And here he says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ, does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching well, if you've got good Christology and you've got good theology or good God study, you have both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Well, I want you to look at that carefully, and I do think there is a practical application for it today. Uh, there was a time in my Christian walk, if any heresy showed up on my front door, I wanted, to them in the, I wanted to buy them into the house and challenge them and look at the Word with them and try to lead them. And you do try that about three or four times and you realize they're not, they did not come to be taught or to listen or to debate or they came programmed to make certain responses to certain questions, and at the end of the day, you're frustrated, and they're first frustrated. And the reality is, John is telling you, if somebody shows up on your doorstep with poor Christology, he doesn't necessarily say slam the door in their face, but he does say, don't invite them in. Don't break bread with them and greet them. 
doesn't mean you can't be nice, but it does mean if you give them time, you're encouraging them, and you, in some way, look at verse 11, you participate in their evil deeds. Do not welcome those who do not bring the good news of Christ. Having many things to write to you, now I don't want to do with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that your joy may be full. Remember he said that he, he wrote First John that his joy might be full. Now he wants their joy to be full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Now what is that? You've got it now, right, from the beginning? There's another church. The children there, chosen sister. Now, we used to say when somebody joined the church from another church in town, some of you all must remember this, they come from a what? Sister church, right? Well, they, the folks from the sister church are sending greetings. The members of your chosen sister church, another church that he's engaged with now, they send word of greeting. So 2 John, written by the elder again, to the Lordess, the lady, and the children, the members of the church, wants them to walk in the truth, and the truth is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and they are to be obedient to the commandments and show their love to one another by being obedient to the commandments and walking in love amongst themselves. And those who do not teach good Christology do not sit down with them at the table for unless they come with the Spirit asking questions to be taught, you're in some way blessing their evilness of their bad theology. You've got 2 John in your pocket. 3 John. The elder, same writer, the presbyteros, to the beloved I would pronounce it Gaius, some people pronounce it Gaius, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So we know who the elder is, John the apostle, to the beloved Gaius. Now, this is one of the few New Testament letters that are written to an individual rather than to a church. Now, the second letter was written, what? To the church, right? To the, to the lady and her children. This one is written to Gaius, an individual. The reality is, however, as you read the letter, you realize that he wants Gaius to read it to the church or at least take the word of the message to the church. In fact, what you discover as you read these individual letters, more often than not, they end up being read in the church anyway. If you get a word from Paul, say a First Timothy or a Titus, you're going to read it to the church. So it is addressed to an individual, but his message, though addressed to Gaius, really is to the whole church. Now, who is this Gaius. There is no reason to suppose that this Gaius has any relation to any other Gaius in the New Testament. This is probably all that we know about him. Now, Gaius was a very common name. Uh, you might say 
like Charles in, in our circles or Richard in our circles. And so if you said Richard, you don't say, well, is that the other Richard? Well, why? you know, everybody's named Richard. Everybody's named Charles, you see, or William or whatever a popular name might be. And we have a Gaius that Paul baptized. We have a Gaius that lets Paul stay in his house, which those two Gaiuses may be the same or not the same. It's just like saying, you know, Susan did it. Well, which Susan? How could anyone possibly know? So this Gaius, this is probably the only time that he's mentioned, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. There might be something wrong with Gaius' health. It's hard to actually know. What he, the little Greek text, what he says to here on the being good health, he says, he ba- basically saying, I wish you a good journey. Don't you like that? I wish you a good journey. Could I, could I wish you anything better in life? And doesn't the journey have its valleys and, and suffering? Oh, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I wish you a good journey, Gaius, just as your soul might prosper. For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in the truth. So again, someone from the church to whom this letter has written, where Gaius is, they have come to visit John the Apostle, and they have witnessed to the truth and what a good person Gaius is, and that is that Gaius is walking the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear my children. What's he calling in First John? His children. He's their spiritual father. The greatest joy I have is to hear my children walking in the truth. Okay, parents and grandparents, do you have any greater joy in life than seeing your children obedient in the faith? If, you, if you've got a greater joy, stand up and say it, because I don't know of one. This is the greatest joy, to see my spiritual children walking in good Christology, walking that Jesus was the Christ in the flesh. No greater joy. He uses children for a reason because he loves them as if they are his biological children. He sees his fatherhood of them. And as you love to see your children do well, is there any greater pain than when your children get wayward on the path? I don't know of any. Beloved, verse 5, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. Now, what is all this about? In antiquity, uh, if, you, if I were to ask you, what is the main thing on I-40? For some reason, not so much on I-27, but what is the main thing on I-40? If you'd say, you might say restaurants, but I think they're even outnumbered. And they're going up all the time. Motels, hotels, right? They start way, they keep building further east so they can be the first one when people hit town, right? And now they're all through here. And in fact, they go up so quickly that someone tells you they're staying at one. Now you have to say, now, now which one is that? I'm not, I'm not sure. That didn't exist in the first century. When you traveled, you stayed with somebody. And if you were a believer, 
you stayed in the home of a believer. And more specifically, there were traveling evangelists and missionaries who were going about strengthening the church with good teaching, and they were totally dependent when they got to town. I mean, you didn't call ahead, right? You got to town, you started looking for a place to stay, and some of the church would say, oh, come and stay with us while you're teaching us for the next month, and they would stay with them, and the church was dependent on these Disciples who were traveling and teaching and being missionaries and starting churches. And look at verse 6. They bear witness, those who've come to visit me, Gaius, they bear witness to your love before the church that you do well and send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Gaius, he's so good to the traveling missionaries. He lets them stay in his home. He gives them gifts. He sends them on their way. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Put another way, Gaius didn't want the evangelist to have to take up an offering amongst those they're trying to evangelize. You see that? If you're going to win somebody to Jesus, you don't finish the sermon and say, now I'm going to take up an offering, right? So they needed the churches that were established, just like we do when you send someone on the mission field. They go to a new place. You, you send them with enough that they don't take up an offering at first where they are until that church is full of believers. Then they take up an offering from them and start the next church. So they didn't want to take anything from the lost, the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. That word, you remember that sermon a few weeks ago, participation. When you give, you participate in what they do. I wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves, I see him rolling his eyes. You know, he could be just as sarcastic as Paul, and Paul could be quite sarcastic. I wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader of the church, he didn't accept what we say. I'll give you a good word of caution. There's no one you want to lead the church less than the one who wants to lead the church. Whatever role that is. When someone says, I'm not sure, isn't there someone who can do that better than I can? They just lifted their stock with me. You see that? Well, Diotrephes loves attention. He wants to lead the church. George Truitt, for whom the seminary's name, that was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, had always seen himself to be an attorney, a lawyer when he grew up. And the church said, no, we want you to be a pastor. And he said, no, no, I'm going into legal practice. And they said, no, you're not. And they hauled him down front and ordained him, and he became a pastor. That's who you want to lead the church, the one who says, I'm not sure I want to lead the church. I wrote some of the church, but Diotrephes, you know, the one who thinks he's the best, he didn't listen to what I had to say. I think maybe he's written a letter that Diotrephes has kind of squelched. And I think this letter perhaps is a substitute for that letter, and therefore it goes to Gaius instead of the church, so Gaius can, you see how it's where he's, oh, John's good. He's working right around Diotrephes. For this reason, if I come, John and Paul lack, no, lack nothing for courage to address the heretics. When I get there, if I get there, I will call attention to his deeds and what he does, unjustly accusing us. Oh, Diotrephes is a gossip. 
accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. Neither does he himself receive the brethren and forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Gaius, you are so kind to the traveling missionaries by Diotrephes, who did not send our letter to ask people to be kind to the missionaries. He not only will not receive the missionaries in his house, despite the fact he's the leader of the church, if anybody greets them, then he kicks them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate Diotrephes' evil. Now, I'm translating it as I'm reading it here. But do what's good. The one who does good is of God. And the one who has done, who does evil has not seen God. Well, we don't want to end on a bad character named Diotrephes. Anybody ever named their kid Diotrephes anymore? Any old diatrophieses back there? I don't remember dedicating a diatrophies. Uh, it would be okay. We'd try to start the name out on a good plane, <laughs> but not many. Not many Judases back there either. Diatrophies. Not, 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 not the name for the kid. But you could name your kid Demetrius. And actually, globally, a lot of people are named Demetrius. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. Now, who's Demetrius? Demetrius is carrying this letter. You normally close the letter by endorsing the one who's toting it, right? So Demetrius has come and said good words about Gaius. Now he's bringing the letter back to Gaius. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We bear witness and you know that our witness is true. So Gaius, be like Demetrius who's bringing this letter and thank you for your kindness to the traveling missionaries and when I get there, I'm going to straighten diatrophies out. I had many things to write to you. It sounds like the ending of Second John, is, doesn't it? But I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly. Don't you like that kind of language? I want to see you shortly. That's old, good language, isn't it? And we shall speak. What do you say in the second epistle? Same thing. Face to face. Face to face. If you got something important to tell to me, don't tell it to me on the phone. In normal days. <laughs> Come see me. Sit down. And let's do it. How? Face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends. By name. What rich letters. What good teachings of Jesus. That he is the Christ in the flesh dwelling among us. And that we are to obey the commandments of God, not simply for obedience sake, but now we do it because we love. We love each other. We live in a new sphere of love even as God has loved us, and now we can call God our, our Father. The church was important to John. Protecting the church from heresy was important then. It's important now. When someone's teaching sounds a little bit strange, don't talk about the axe head and whether it floats or not and don't talk about if it was real wine or what. Just say, 
tell me what you think about Jesus. It doesn't matter how many of the other answers they get right. If they don't get Jesus right, they don't count. And you close the door and you're done. Tell me what you think about Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, we want to believe all the good things about our Lord. He's the son of God, born the Bethlehem baby, died on the cross, rose again, ascended, see the right hand of the Father, and coming again. For the Lord is the lady and her children for us, the church. In the name of Jesus, we pray.